Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. A lot of it was there was an assumption that we had more shared context than we really had. So the engineers kind of thought, well, it'll be obvious to the operations folks that this thing is deployed correctly or incorrectly, whereas like, no, there was no reason for it to be obvious to the operation folks. What would have made it obvious to the operations folks? Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we discuss career adaptation and meeting the evolving needs of your company with Barbara Nelson, VP of Engineering at Influx Data. And in our conversation, we cover some of the lessons that Barbara learned serving as an interim VP of Operations. We talked about different perspectives on pursuing new opportunities, the quote-unquote career ladder, and what to do when you feel stuck on that career ladder. We also talk about adapting different teams based on personality dynamics and how to tailor roles specifically to individuals and then help those individuals overcome different fears and limitations. Let me introduce you to Barbara. Barbara leads the engineering team at Influx Data. She has extensive experience leading globally distributed teams in designing, developing, deploying, and supporting products and services that are delivered on a cloud-based service platform. Prior to Influx Data, Barbara had a variety of engineering and technical leadership roles, including VP of Engineering at iPass, CTO at Serence, and Principal Architect at eBay. Enjoy our conversation with Barbara Nelson. How are you doing today? How was your Wednesday? I'm doing great. My Wednesday is going really, really well. It's a sunny day outside. I'm being productive and get to have a conversation with you. There we go. I'm looking forward to the rest of the day. I know that some of the themes that we wanted to talk about in the the world of our conversation sort of revolves around adaptation and some of the different ways that that's shown up with your career and with the different teams. And so I know that we're going to kind of talk about the world of adapting yourself to different opportunities, uh, adapting your role and adapting teams to unlock performance. You know, I know that one of your favorite questions or, or leadership dilemmas is this idea of how do you organize a group of people to be effective at what they're doing and enjoy what they're doing. And so I'd love to learn, when did this become important to you? And how has this dilemma shown up in your career? So I think it's always being important to me. I'm one of eight children, one of the middle children. And so we tended to do a lot of things growing up together. We're close, we're all fairly close in age. There was always a risk of kind of just getting lost in the crowd. So getting lost as being just, you know, one of the group. And a lot of what we did was group oriented rather than individual oriented. And so I always gravitated to a role where I could both fit in and stand out. So I could be a part of the team working with everybody else, but also feel I had some unique contribution to make. 
I think of it kind of like a sports team. So, you know, there are 11 players on the field in a game of soccer, but they're not all goalkeepers. They're not all the forwards. Everyone has their own role to play. So it's still that you're working as a team. You still have a collective goal, but you each contribute in a unique way. And so that's something that has always been really important to me. I think it's so powerful that your experience growing up as one of eight as a way to help then identify roles for other people, like helping people, one, figure out how to fit in, but also that they can uniquely impact their team, their organization. I think that's such a powerful motivation that goes all the way back to your childhood. That's cool. To dive in a little bit deeper to some of the specific transitions you've experienced, your career has been really interesting in that you've done a lot of different things across a lot of sort of different engineering capabilities and functions. I mean, you've done everything from what you're doing now as a VP of engineering, CTO, chief architect, VP of product development, VP of operations, CIO, developer, this this whole breadth of the industry. And so I was curious, like, how have you approached adapting to some of these different roles throughout your career? And was there a time where you had to step the furthest out of your comfort zone to adapt to the needs of the company or to that role? A lot of what I try and do is really to fit the needs of the business. And so the roles change over time. So the one time where I probably adapted or stretched further than I was used to was in a previous job, I was the VP of engineering. And we had had two basically failed hires for VP of operations. And so I had been part of the interviewing committee and we had hired a VP of operations. They came in, they really weren't a good fit. Uh, They chose to leave very quickly. We then brought another one in. Same thing, not a great fit. As I was looking at it, I was going, you know, before we launch into trying to find a third VP of operations, when it's not clear why we're not hitting the mark, maybe I should try doing this job for a while. So I talked to my manager about becoming a kind of an interim VP of operations while continuing to be the VP of engineering. It was a completely new area to me. I was very honest to the operation engineers of being, hey, I'm learning. I'm just here to try and figure this out. But I found it incredibly powerful. I found I learned a ton about A, what their needs were as an operational team, the kinds of things that we in engineering were doing that without realizing were really inconveniencing the operations folks. There were things we could be doing differently on the engineering side that would have made life so much easier for the operations folks. And so by kind of doing both jobs, I found I was actually better at each of those jobs. And I ended up keeping the dual role until I left that company. You know, I didn't do it from a career perspective. I didn't do it to say, oh, you know, my resume would look better if I also had VP of operations. I was driven very much by trying to understand the needs of a particular team and what kind of manager they needed. But in doing so, yeah, I was definitely winging it. So the first time I was in a colo, I'm looking at all this equipment and going, hmm, this is all ours. And, And they're looking at me like, yes, have you never been in a colo before? I was like, well... No. So it was definitely learning as I went, but I found it a very validating experience in doing it. What was the ramp up like taking on the the interim VP of operations role? Um, you mentioned like there's definitely some, some learning on the fly. What was it like to dive in and learn that whole new no- domain? Yeah, to a certain extent, I tried not to actually learn at all. I mean, I was the it was kind of the the opposite of imposter syndrome. It was the being very clear on I'm here to help, I'm here to facilitate, but all I'm really trying to do is enable the people who already know what they're doing. To a certain extent, it was just trying to see where was their friction in the process, where were their communication problems, but not trying to in any way claim that I knew how to lead this group. Bear in mind, they also had just been through 
to changes in rapid succession in their manager. So as, to a certain extent, you know, they were prepared to give me a fair amount of the benefit of the doubt on this one. Well, and I think the perspective of coming in, sharing that I'm here to help facilitate and to remove the friction and to make your, your job easier, like there's something inherently disarming of when you step into a role from that perspective of I'm here to support you, like let's do this together. And I feel like that's a really powerful way, like for a team that maybe uh, has been under-supported and has lacked some of the, the leadership there to have somebody come in and declare that intent, I think is a really powerful way to enter. You know, you, you identified a couple areas of friction of, you know, how the engineering team was like unconsciously inconveniencing the operations side of the team. Can you share some of the maybe the things that you discovered or uncovered or learned there? Sure. A lot of it was the engineers would develop the software and focus on kind of the functionality of the software, but not really think about the deployment process itself. So basic things like they'd give, you know, instructions on how this software would be deployed. And this was a long time ago when there was more of a separation between the software development teams and the operations teams. So they'd give instructions. The instructions were a bit vague and half-baked as if you actually knew what you were doing. And then they'd give no mechanism to validate that the thing would work. So it'd be just, please follow these 17 steps. And then, you know, at the end of it all, green lights should come on and we're all good. <laughs> Instead of it being, you know, here's step one, and then you can check that that was okay. Now step two, and you can check when that was okay. And if this goes wrong, how you roll it back. There was an assumption of success that just didn't match the reality. And I just found that the operations folks were left really guessing if anything didn't show up. So, you know, if the release note said, after this step, this message will display, and then the message didn't display, and they were like, well, you know, now what am I supposed to do? So just some minor changes in giving the engineers more of a operational point of view of saying, hey, if you're standing there at two in the morning doing this work, let's make it more obvious as to are we on the right track? Are we on the wrong track? What were the specific changes that then you implemented with engineering? Was it then having sort of like a framework or a checklist saying, if this release is happening, like make sure that these questions are answered so that people then deploying this know what's going on? That was probably the more formal piece, but mm -hmm. I think the more the informal piece was just letting them be aware of, hey, this is what happens. I was there and I saw it and this is what it looks like. Even me just reading the release notes that went out or just making them a more important part of the deliverable, making the awareness of being, it isn't just the software you deliver. You know, if you write this software, but it then can't be deployed correctly, then that's not terribly helpful. So it actually goes to a broader philosophy of mine of being kind of the journey isn't over until we're all done. By me getting better visibility to what was happening on the operations side, I was able to reflect that back to the software development team of being, look, you know, we may think we've done 90% of the work, but in fact, we haven't. The, the broadening of philosophy element, like I feel has to make a, a huge difference in terms of then how the engineering team thinks and then that therefore then changes the specific yeah. things that happen. It, this reminds me of, I, I was talking with my wife when we were talking about a team development activity, this idea of like giving directions about how to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich. And you just write down what those are. And then somebody then does it literally, they do it literally, whatever it is you write, they literally follow the directions. And then the outcomes can be hilarious, totally unexpected, and definitely not quite the peanut butter jelly sandwich that you expected. And right. the intention being, you know, showing the gaps in communication and that happened and how, like you were pointing out some of the really important assumptions that the engineering teams are making that led to some unexpected or, or flawed outcomes. Yeah, and a lot of it is what shared context do you think people have or what shared knowledge do you think people have? So, you know, you might take your analogy of the peanut butter sandwich. You, you know, if you have a shared context, which is we've all seen what peanut butter sandwiches look like, then it's like, oh, well, I can just tell you there's the bread, there's the peanut butter, there's the jelly, off you go. 
But if you're in a world where it's like, well, no, this person has never seen anything like this and they don't know what a thing called a sandwich is, then that's very different. And so I found a lot of it was there was an assumption that we had more shared context than we really had. So the engineers kind of thought, well, it'll be obvious to the operations folks that this thing is deployed correctly or incorrectly, whereas like, no, there was no reason for it to be obvious to the operation folks. What would have made it obvious to the operations folks? Uh, That's such a powerful question to introduce to your team. What shared context do people have and what are some of those assumptions at play? That's really powerful. You'd mentioned in your story about this importance of really adapting to whatever is needed and and being open-minded when it comes to pursuing career opportunities. And you just shared, you know, the story of transitioning into the world of operations and bringing it back. I was wondering if there were other experiences maybe where you had to wrestle with a decision about whether to stay in a role or pursue a different path. Um, are there any stories about kind of that journey of being in a fork in a road and trying to make a decision about a next step? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the same. (laughs) It's the same career ladder that I think a lot of folks in engineering face, which is, you know, you come out of college. So I have a degree in computer science. You come out of college and you're kind of you're on the individual contributor track. You're a software engineer and then you do well at that. You'll be a senior software engineer and then you'll be a principal software engineer and staff engineer and so on. And it's seen visually as it's a ladder and there are rungs on the ladder and you work your way up the rungs on the ladder. And then at some point, there's what people describe as the fork in the road of do you take the managerial track or do you take, do you stay on the individual contributor track? And what I found is there are no forks in the road. There, you know, there are opportunities to go left, go right, go left, go right. I found a number of times I would be informally coaxed into taking on some level of managerial responsibility, whether it was just kind of keeping an eye on a more junior developer or maybe having one or two people report to me. And then, you know, I would gravitate back to the more technical role and be more of an individual contributor. But I saw it as being far more fluid, whereas the latter as a metaphor, seems to imply that kind of you're only on one ladder at a given time. I find, you know, often people get hung up on that of being, well, I'm on this ladder and therefore these are my career paths. Whereas in fact, I found, you know, by being open to alternatives, you'd be surprised how many different ladders you can be climbing at the same time. So when when somebody comes to you and says like, oh, I'm, I'm on this particular ladder and I'm, I'm stuck here and I'm nervous about making a decision, what, what type of, of coaching advice would you have with them in, in that career conversation? Yeah, in general, my approach has always been to say, just go for it. If an opportunity presents itself that is a little different than the, the one you're on, give it a try. You will learn so much. You will either learn, you love this, this is an opportunity that you didn't think you'd love and you'd love, or just as importantly, you'll learn, I hate this. You know, I just absolutely can't stand this, in which case, great. You know, you've learned a lot of useful stuff out of that and you work your way back. So it's not like, you know, you're stuck on once you go one way, you can't go back to the other. You can easily pivot. And I would say the one of the things that I found in my career is that often when companies are struggling and when times are hard, that's actually the best time the, when these opportunities arise. So you often find there are gaps. They're kind of like, well, you know, we can't afford to fill this role right now. So are you willing to kind of do it on a part-time basis? Are you willing to help out and so on? And through those opportunities, you get exposure and you get visibility in a way that you normally wouldn't. So I would say whenever those opportunities come your way, take them. 
Now, it's a good thing to keep communicating with your manager while you're doing this because you may find, you know, that was a really bad decision. I discovered that, you know, I'm no good at that job and I don't like it. And then it's like, okay, then it's good to be having those conversations. But I would err on the side of if an opportunity arises that is different from what you're doing, give it a try. That is such an empowering perspective. Just go for it. And I think those three words are so powerful. In your own experience, so you mentioned a company that is experiencing that is struggling, or it's a, a really challenging time, which I think a lot of people relate to, like right now, it can be a very challenging environment to work in, in terms of what's going on with a lot of companies. Is there a specific moment from your experience where you saw an opportunity and you just went for it? And you look back and you're so grateful that you decided to just go for it? So very early on in my career, I worked at a company called General Magic. So General Magic had basically the tagline afterwards of being described as Silicon Valley's most important failure. Now, in fact, it wasn't its most important failure, but it was a very significant company. We were very far ahead of our times developing technology long before anybody thought they needed it. And while it was incredibly successful from a pure technology evolution, ultimately it was a complete commercial failure. You know, I learned so much at General Magic in terms of a company that I worked at, a team I worked with, a group of people that I worked with. It was phenomenal. But if I look back, it's like, yeah, you know, do you want to be that your early career was in something that was a complete commercial failure? Not always, um, but it was definitely the right thing for me to have done at that time. Tell us more about that experience working at General Magic and how that impacted your leadership philosophy or the ways that you approach building teams now. Sure. So at General Magic, the general approach was if you hire the best and the brightest and you give them room to flourish, magic will happen. We didn't have titles. We were all called magicians. There was no org chart. There was no structure to it. There was a very vague description of a high level problem, which is kind of make it so that people can communicate anytime, anywhere, in whatever way they like. And so the general culture was very unstructured. If you did your work best standing on your head at two in the morning, then off you go and you go do that. And as a result, while we built some really, really cool technology and some really interesting capabilities, it didn't fit together. We didn't actually deliver a product that the market actually wanted. We also had a lot of friction in terms of how we even worked together. There was no decision maker. You know, if you give six strong engineers a problem to solve and they come up with different ways of doing it. There was no arbitrator of this. There was no one to say, those are great ideas. We're going with that one. And so it turned into a free-for-all or, you know, you could think you had made a decision one day, you went home that night, you came back the next morning and the entire thing had been turned on its head because somebody else thought of something else. It was, you know, exciting and novel and different, but a bit chaotic too. And it really told me that if you don't set some level of boundaries within which an engineering team is supposed to operate, you know, the brighter the people, the further they diverge. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes that I think about when it comes to approaching problems. It's that constraints breed creativity. And that sometimes like when you're working with incredibly brilliant or creative people, providing some sort of boundaries for them to work in will yield more creative problems versus limitless possibility. And there was also, I think this came from, there was a psychology experiment of like observing children on a playground. And the thing is, the coolest experiment because the first one was like a playground with, with no boundaries and the kids would sort of cautiously stick close to the playground and kind of play within a very small bound. But then when they introduced a fence, all of a sudden the kids are bouncing off the edges of the fence and they're more dynamic and exploring more. And so it just, it becomes really interesting when you think about like the scope of a problem, like providing just some boundary 
can then unlock a lot more creative decisions versus I think some of the paralysis that could happen when it's this kind of limitless possibility. Right. Very much so. And I would say the analogy was given that we had hired such a strong team, it's like they're probably not the kids who stay put in the playground. <laughs> I think we had, yeah, we were off wandering into the forest. We were, you know, no boundaries meant no boundaries. And if you take, you hire explorers and give them no boundaries, well, you know, off they go. <laughs> so I think that made it even harder. The combination of the brilliant team and no boundaries. How did this experience shape how you approach like sharing problems with your current teams or like introducing problem sets to to solve? What's been kind of the impact there? Yeah, I think the first change it made for me was that I'd say before General Magic, I felt that technology excited me. I loved cool technology. After General Magic, while I was still excited by technology, it had to have a purpose. I had to see who am I building this for and what difference is it going to make for them and how are they going to use it? And I measure my success by how well the software that I developed is used by real people and solves their problems. When I'm working with developers these days, I always want to make sure that they see that too. Who's this for? What problems are we trying to solve? In what way? And, and to a certain extent, you know, give them enough freedom, but enough of those boundaries too. So as you say, they have creativity, but you still, you're aligned on a goal. It's always been really important to me that I'm delivering real products that make a real difference to somebody. It was interesting. Many years ago, I was having a conversation with a system architect in a very large company, and his role was to produce specifications. I think they were for particular networking protocols or something. His output was a specification. And I asked him at one stage, I was like, is your networking protocol in use in various products? And he said, oh, I have no idea. And I was a little taken aback. And he's like, no, you know, my output is the specification. After that, I, I don't actually care what happens to the spec. And I was floored by that. I was like, wow, I could never have that the spec is my outcome. To me, I measure my success by whether the product that gets built is actually being used. Now, I'm not trying in any way to undermine this system architect, who I think did a phenomenal job of defining it. And I think more important to me was you have to know what measures your success. You have to know what's going to be important to you and then make sure you're doing a job that aligns with that. So I would have been a very frustrated architect in a large company if all I was supposed to do was write a spec and then stay out of the way. I needed the kind of the validation that came from, oh, no, people are actually using this product. But many people don't. Many people can be very effective in a different step in the overall product development process. Two very interesting things here is I know we're, we're talking about adaptation. And so in some ways, one, from a career adaptation standpoint, understanding where you gain satisfaction from the output of your of your role is really important. And then I think in determining which role to, to take on and that aligning some of those areas can be a way for you to get more satisfaction. Um, the other side of this, so we're also talking about like team adaptation and how to adjust teams to perform at a, at a higher level. Related to what you were sharing, you know, we were talking about outputs and like, you know, this architect getting satisfaction from a certain output. What is it like for you to provide guidance to maybe new teams like around what their output is? Like, do, is there a certain conversation that you have with teams to help shape what that final output is? Or do you have any guidance that you recommend folks do to, to help shape like an output that's aligned with a more impactful outcome? It actually goes back a little bit to your, uh, your playground analogy again. I think what teams need to know is what are hard requirements and where are their degrees of flexibility? Because they, you know, they don't want everything spelt out for them. 
They don't want every last minutia of, I, this is exactly the software I want you to write, and this is exactly how it should work, and this is exactly what it should do. They don't want that. At the same time, they generally don't want that they reach the finish line or what they think is the finish line, and the answer is, oh, well, that was great, but that wasn't actually what we needed, and didn't we tell you it needed this other thing? Really trying to distinguish between clarifying kind of these are the must-haves and these are where you have degrees of freedom so that then they do feel like they have the creativity and they have the flexibility to build the solution in a way that makes sense for them, but it'll still hit the mark in terms of what it ultimately delivers. And so that's a really important conversation to have at the beginning. That's why I feel the the relationship between the product management folks who are kind of defining the what we're building and the engineering team that are defining the how we're building it, that the relationship between those two teams is so important. And it's such a balance to understand constantly. It's, it isn't something that you just tell them once at the start of a project and then you never have to reiterate it. You're constantly adapting as you go forward because things keep changing. And so having that sense of where are their degrees of freedom and where are they not gives the, you know, gives the engineering team the right level of empowerment while also ensuring they're still going to be successful. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The product engineering relationship is, is a really interesting dynamic to bring up. You mentioned like, especially as like things, things change or like the environment changes or the needs of your customers change and that happens all the time. Are there certain conversations or questions that you found to be really helpful in driving that relationship between product and engineering in a way that helps you meet some of the dynamic changes that are at play for your customers? I think a lot comes down to really understanding kind of the question behind the question. So it isn't just, it needs to be blue. Well, okay, why does it need to be blue? It needs to be blue because it has to fit in with these other things. And so again, kind of setting the context so that then they really can understand why they have a degree of freedom. It isn't just arbitrary. It isn't just, oh, well, you know, they told me this is important and this is not. But you're setting the context for how they build what they build. And so the product managers have have a really great opportunity to set that context and adjust that context because they tend to be the ones who spend more time talking to the customers. They tend to be the ones who spend more time looking at competing products. And so they are able to establish that context for the engineers without the engineers having to you know, repeat the whole thing and go talk to every customer themselves or go play with every competing product themselves. And so having that close relationship between those two folks or two teams is a really important piece so that then you've got that right balance and negotiation throughout the whole project of this is something that turned out to be harder to do than we think. Uh, how critical is it? And the product manager is very easily able to answer that question of how critical the thing actually is or not. And I definitely appreciate the roles of context there and understanding the why behind some of those requirements. Um, I had one more follow-up question about this because this was a challenge that came up recently in one of our VPs of engineering level peer groups. And one of them was kind of spotlighting some of the tension in their organization between product and engineering. Specifically, what they were facing was like product wasn't necessarily setting the right context for engineering and there was a gap there. 
And I was wondering maybe in the absence of that context happening, is there any recommendations or, or advice you might provide an engineering leader who is interfacing with a product group that maybe is not providing the right context and setting those right requirements where they can maybe intervene and like help bridge the gap there? Oh, absolutely. You know, I've always described it as a good product management team and a good product manager can make an engineering team stellar. A bad product manager can make an engineering team appear incompetent. Um, <laughs> and I, I've seen that where it's like the engineer goes off with these half-baked requirements. They struggle to try and deliver them. They do their best job to try and deliver. At the end, the thing that arrives is either late doesn't match the requirements and everyone's looking at engineering kind of going, well, what in God's name was that? And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, hold on. That's a, that touch point is an area I feel I, I get heavily involved in. You know, I will look at what the ask is and go, does this ask actually make sense? And if it doesn't, then yeah, I'm very clear to the engineering leaders of speak up. I think of it slightly like passing the baton in a relay race. You know, if, if they didn't put it in your hand and they dropped it on the floor, that is a problem for all of us. We're all on the same team. So speak up, ask the questions early, because often it'll be you know, the same as any other situation. The product manager doesn't know that the engineer doesn't have that shared context. Once in a previous job, I was working with a team of engineers that were based in India we were struggling a lot where they were making assumptions about the user experience. And, you know, this was a service we were building for business travelers. And it was only as we dug into it that we realized that many of these engineers had never actually been in the environment where this product was being used. So just basic things like they hadn't actually dealt with, you know, what in-flight Wi-Fi was like because they hadn't been on a plane that had in-flight Wi-Fi. So it's like, so when they're saying things like, well, just go reset the router, it's like, excuse me, how do I just go reset the router on an airplane? <laughs> it was, again, it was that shared context just wasn't established. This conversation is important enough to have, to have often and to have early and don't launch into things if you are not completely clear on what you're being asked to do. And then, you know, and speak up to the product managers. The product managers may absolutely assume that you have this figured out. You've seen this before. You know what this is. And if you don't, do like I do. Play dumb. Ask the questions. Fantastic. I, I mean, like, so in the context of our conversation here today, we're talking about adaptation. I think just really highlighting how important it is to get the shared context if you don't have it and with that pass off and how critical that is. I think that's such a powerful tool in terms of building a team that can adapt to just some of the changing needs of the company, the customers and everything like that. One other element here that I was hoping we could dive into about team adaptation. Um, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about uh, or maybe share an example of how you help the team adapt to unlock their performance, specifically in the world of like personality dynamics and aligning their work with things that get them excited. Um, I was wondering if you had any examples or insights kind of within that space. One of the things I've always tried to do is tailor the role to the people rather than tailor the people to the role and tailor the job to match the skill sets of the folks that are there. And so in one example, in a previous job where I was working with a really good product manager who had a very good relationship with the engineering team, we were trying to hire a new engineering manager, and we were really struggling with trying to find somebody to come in and lead the team. And the more we spent talking about it, the clearer it became to me that the person who was the right fit for this team was actually the product manager. 
And so I asked the product manager if he would consider moving over into the engineering management role, and then we'd backfill on the product management side. He was a little reluctant. He felt he didn't have a software engineering degree and that, you know, he didn't have kind of the, what he felt were the street creds to go with the engineering team. And I was like, this engineering team knows you well. They respect you a lot already. You have the street creds. You may not think you have them, but you absolutely have them. So he agreed, moved over into the role. And then we started thinking about backfilling a product manager. While we were thinking about backfilling the product manager, he was basically doing both jobs. And time passes. We weren't getting terribly far on hiring the new product manager. And he came back to me and he said, you know, he said, I actually find I'm more effective doing both of these roles together. That that natural tension that happens between the engineering manager and the product manager, where the product manager is asking for lots of features and the engineering manager is saying, you can't have them because, you know, I don't have enough engineering resources. He said, I have that conversation with myself in the shower and then I get up and I get on about my day. He was very effective in this dual role. So we kept him in it. The team worked really well with him in the dual role. They needed him as both their product manager and as their engineering manager. The personalities were such they respected him in both roles. I wouldn't normally say, oh, you should find combo engineering manager, product managers. This was a case where it was a win for him and it was absolutely a win for the team. And they all worked very effectively together. You know, maybe a little bit back to me and the running VP of ops and VP of engineering is sometimes the personality is such that they will fill multiple spots. And if they do, and they can do it in a day's work, let them do it. It definitely helped our team dynamic for that group. The fear that I experience is like, if I'm leading multiple teams and one person, like the the dynamic and responsibilities are a little bit different than others, like, am I going to be able to manage that overhead in my head of like understanding all of the things that are at play? One, is that fear unfounded? Uh, and two, like when you're managing multiple teams and like you're helping tailor that role for one one person, what's that experience like from like a leadership perspective? Short answer, is that fear unfounded? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a team. So your role in leading a team is to lead a team and the others will contribute. So they will come to meet you. You know, if you have the time to micromanage all these people, that's not good for them. The one of the things is the busier you are up to a point, I mean, there's a point which is, becomes impossible, the more you will prioritize the important stuff and the more the rest of the team will step up because they will see they, you know, you can't do everything. You don't want to kind of limit people of just being, well, you know, that's too much work. Let them tell you that's too much work. It's amazing how much a team will come together and pick up the pieces and fill the gaps and cover everything rather than it simply being this one person needs to do it all. So yeah, in this example of this guy who went from just being the product manager to being the product manager and the engineering manager, I'm sure there were certain things that the previous engineering manager had been able to do that he wasn't able to do because he was kind of double booked. The important ones got done. And and it, it's a it's also it's a growth opportunity for the people on the team. They they see space. They see an area where they can step in and do more rather than feeling like their role is narrowly defined. I wanted to jump into one other topic related to adaptation. Part of it is this concept of of meeting developers where they are. And this is, I know, an important part of your leadership philosophy. And so could you give us a little more context behind, you know, what does meeting developers where they are mean to you and maybe share about your personal philosophy on how to approach meeting developers where they are within your organization. So meeting developers where they are, 
to me, there's kind of, there's two aspects to it. So there's one as a manager. So if, you know, I'm a, I'm manage a team that has developers in it. A lot of that is thinking about kind of how do I bring out the best in these people? How do I set them up for success? How do I give them the context that they need and give them the tools that they need so that they can then thrive, they can be successful, they can deliver what needs to be done and that they will enjoy it. So there's a certain orientation around meeting the developer where they are within the company. And so for a company like Influx Data, which is a relevant relatively small company, I can get to know the people personally well enough so that I can really try and tailor their experiences to their strengths, play to their strengths and play away from their weaknesses. Obviously, when you're building a product for developers, as Influx Data is, where we're building a time series database, I don't have that luxury. I can't say, oh, I intimately know every developer who's going to be a customer of our product, and I'm going to be able to tailor the exact experience for that particular developer. I don't get that much of a luxury, but I can still bring the mindset of not assuming this is a one-size-fits-all. We have developers using our products who maybe are kind of looking for a very visual experience for time series data. You often have to look at it visually to kind of spot the anomalies. And so having visual capabilities for them where they can graphically see what it looks like is really important to some. Other developers, they're building their own application. They don't need any of our visual capabilities, but they want an API. They want a very quick and easy way to be able to write time series data into the database. And they want a way to be able to query it back. Developers write in many different languages. And so we'll have developers that want APIs into our product in a whole host of different programming languages. So we provide that too. You know, where the thing runs, developers are going to want to build products that run in an infrastructure that they manage in their environment. And so we make that available. Others are kind of like, I don't care, you know, please run it in the cloud for me. I want to just use this thing and not have to be responsible for 24 by 7 management of it. And so we offer that as an alternative too. So we don't just view it as being all developers, you know, eat alike, think alike, speak alike. It's more of what is the range of capabilities where we can deliver the service such that it will maximize the, you know, the number of developers for whom they find this a useful capability. And so it drives both the product feature set and it also drives kind of how we go to market with the product. So it's, you know, not all developers are the same. Therefore, the product can't be the same for all of them. I I love the perspective of it being an orientation, both internally with the teams that you're leading, but also then if your product or service is serving developers as a primary audience, having that same orientation about, you know, how do you help build a tool that brings the best out of these folks? Specifically for like the leadership and management perspective, are there any interesting or unique stories or examples from when you or your team had to meet developers where they were in an interesting or or unique way? Like when you were talking about context, tools, or resources, were there any unique things that came up using that orientation? In our situation where we've been the leaders in a space, but it's in a very growing space, what has been most interesting is seeing the variability in the applications by which people use our products. So it's like, you know, time series just means measurements that come in over time, just seeing the breadth of different use cases. You know, we had one customer who was tracking migrating birds. So just seeing the breadth of the use cases and then seeing how we fit into those has really been fascinating. And so, you know, I find it kind of intellectually interesting, but I also find it as a really good way of giving purpose to the engineers so that they can see, oh, this really did make a difference and that this is a unique and interesting environment in which our technology might be used. 
from some of the stories that you've shared, like one of the most powerful practices that I'm taking away from this conversation, at the beginning, we were talking about, you know, one of the key areas where you get motivation from is seeing the products that you're building in use with people and to be able to see that real impact. The stories that you've shared have kind of illustrated like the power of when you can take that impact and share and really explicitly connect that impact to the teams that are helping build that product can be really, really powerful. So when you're talking about giving purpose engineers is showing that what they built made a huge difference for these people. I just think that's really powerful practice to be able to explicitly circle back and connect the impact of what you're doing. I just think that's really powerful. We've got some rapid fire questions for you, Barbara. Uh, But one more question just to revisit some of the broad topics that we've been talking about with aligning yourself and your career to the needs of the company, and then helping companies adapt to different landscapes of what's going on. I was wondering if you had any final thoughts you wanted to share with folks listening in about aligning based on company needs or realigning your team based on some of the challenges that are coming up. Are there any sort of final thoughts that you have along those lines? Yeah. So, you know, if you talk about the current landscape, I think the, you know, the question, it's like, it's all over Twitter feeds, it's all over the news these days is kind of the implication of chat GPT and, you know, the evolution in AI recently. And so, you know, you could take one very pessimistic approach, which says, well, our days are numbered, and this thing is just going to take over and humans are going to have no purpose. Or you could take a more optimistic approach, which I generally do, which is as AI starts solving some problems for us, you know, we get to be creative and we get to find the new problems that it isn't yet solving. So I think it really, you know, it'll take some of the mundane out of what we do. To me, that's the most intriguing aspect of the human spirit is how do we find the new things? So, you know, the roles of today are not necessarily the roles of tomorrow, but in exactly the same way as the roles of yesterday aren't the roles of today. Seeing how we coexist and how we enhance the products we build by leveraging the power of AI, but not getting lost in it, I think is going to be really interesting for companies as we move forward. A really powerful perspective. Before we end our conversation, Barbara, we've got a couple rapid fire questions if you're ready to jump into those. Sure. (laughs) All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? So I've just finished reading a book called Build, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making by Tony Fidel. Now, part of the reason I read it is because I used to work with Tony back in the days of General Magic. But I found it a fascinating set of conversations around the product development process. It's very easy reading, but very thought provoking. That's awesome. The powerful questions around product building. It's got me. I'm in. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? Agile methodology has had a big impact on me. And mostly because in my early years, projects were traditionally waterfall in nature. We would just, we would spend a ton worrying about the what ifs to cover every possible potential edge case that we might hit. And the brighter the team, the more time was spent dreaming up more what ifs and having more technical conversations to solve more potential problems off way into the future. And while they were, you know, intellectually interesting conversations, there was no way to shut them down. Agile gives you permission to defer those conversations, cross that bridge later when you come to it. Because if I look back at some of those earlier projects, we spent so much time worrying about problems that never arose. The world changed, everything changed long before we got to any of those. So I found Agile as a methodology keeps me more grounded in today's problems by kind of giving you a reprieve on it's okay to have to rework tomorrow. It's okay to have to come back and readdress this. 
Nobody has ever mentioned the mental turmoil of waterfall development and agile being, you know, like a reliever of that. So to hear your perspective there is like, oh my gosh, a lot of people are gonna hear that and be like, finally, somebody spoke the reality of or the relief into existence. So I love I love that perspective. Last question, Barbara, is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Yeah, it's it's probably a pretty simple one, but it's basically to take life one day at a time. I tend not to dwell too much on what's far off into the future. Uh, I focus on what's important now and generally tomorrow will take care of itself. This has really helped me when times have been hard because you just like just focus on getting through today. And it's also helped me when times have been awesome. You know, don't get too carried away, assuming this is the life you'll have forever, but just enjoy today. Just live today. As we wind up our conversation, first off, just thank you for some incredible stories and diving into the ways that adaptation has shown up in your career and some of the dynamics with building different teams. But just like I wanted to remark, it is a rare combination to have both optimism and it, like an extreme ability for executing and taking action on, on today. For me, as somebody who's also optimistic, to see you embody that has been really exciting. And so just thank you for sharing your optimism with us, but also all of the different ways that we can help teams do more, be more, achieve more together in a lot of different ways. It's been a lot of fun, Barbara. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.